Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Good evening, Audrey. Godgy, good evening, William. And good evening to you, sir. Good evening, gentle friend. Cover thy head, cover thy head. Nay, prithee be covered. How old are you, friend? Uh, f- five and twenty, sir. A ripe age. Is thy name William? William, sir. A fair name. Wast born in the forest here? Aye, sir, I thank God. Thank God, a good answer. Art rich? Faith, sir, so-so. So-so is good, very good, very excellent good. And yet it is not, it is but so-so. Art thou wise? Aye, sir, I have a pretty wit. Why, thou sayst well. You do love this maid? I do, sir. Give me your hand. Art thou learned? No, sir. Then learn this of me. To have is to have. For it's a figure in rhetoric that drink being poured out of a cup into a glass by filling the one doth empty the other. For all your writers do consent, that Ipsy is he. Now, you are not Ipsy. I am he. Which he, sir? He, sir, that must marry this woman. Therefore, you clown, abandon, which is in the vulgar leave, the society, which in the boorish is company, of this female, which in the common is woman, which together is, abandon the society of this female, or clown, thou perishest. Or to thy better understanding, diest. Or to wit, I kill thee, make thee away, translate thy life into death, thy liberty into bondage. I will deal in poison with thee, or in bastinado, or in steel. I will ban thee with the infraction, I will run thee with policy. I will kill you a hundred and fifty ways. Therefore, tremble and depart. God rest you, Mary, sir. <laughs> Welcome to the Plays the Thing. Today is the fifth and final act of As You Like It. That uh, audio that you just heard was from scene one of Act Five when poor William, affectionate to Audrey, is chased away by Touchstone, who is the fiance of Audrey. I love the line, Heidi. I will kill thee a hundred and fifty ways. <laughs> I have felt that way sometimes about certain people in my life. Absolutely. Same. Um, I am joined, as you can hear, by Heidi White, 
Uh, I want to give thanks uh, for the audio from the BBC's 1978 production of As You Like It, starring Helen Mirren as Rosalind. Uh, if you're an Amazon Prime member, I hate that they're going to get free advertising out of the show, um, but they're going to get free advertising out of the show. That play is free for Amazon Prime members, the 1978 As You Like It version. It's very good. Heidi, here we are. Here we completing are. Completing As You Like It, Act 5. It's been, a, it's been a journey of the soul because we've been doing this play throughout the coronavirus crisis and talking about it the whole time. And it feels like a little bit of an odyssey. Here we are at the happy ending, the, I, the wedding. Yes. We, here we are at the wedding. Before we get to the wedding, um, last week I mentioned that my friend Andrew was getting tested for coronavirus and I was nervous that if he had it, surely I had it. I'm happy to report that he does not have it. And I feel great. I assume that I don't have it, but I'm still taking precautions. That is a very big relief. I'm very glad to hear it. I didn't want to freak out on the air and be like, this is a very big deal, Tim. I know. I did not want coronavirus. I did not want to make you freak out on the air, Heidi. But it's funny. It's funny how... I don't know if you've had this experience. I am not a hypochondriac. I actually could benefit from being a little bit more of a hypochondriac. Like I just don't ordinarily kind of take some precautions that I, that I should, but I have found out that since this thing has crept up on everyone, I found myself being a little bit of a hypochondriac. I'll have some strange, I'll have a hangnail and I'll be like, Oh my gosh, it's coronavirus. You know, know, I'm with you. It is just, I, I mean, if you had the coronavirus, I would be very worried about you and very sad. But I also, I really wouldn't freak out. But still, you'd be the first person I'd actually know with it. So yes, yeah, we're all very glad that you're healthy. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that I'm healthy. And Andrew too, and his family. Yes, we are very grateful because Andrew is worse than I at taking precautions. But that is another story for a podcast we will never do. Yes. So, um, Heidi, uh-huh. were you shocked when our comedy ended in three marriages? Oh, I mean, absolutely blown away. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is one of the happy, happy, happy endings. Three happies, three, three weddings. Yes. One, uh, and so I think that that's... Um, you know, this is one of Shakespeare's most well-known plays, most well-known of the high comedies, uh, meaning that kind of group of comedies written in the middle years of his genius, in, including uh, Twelfth Night and Midsummer Night's Dream, which kicked off the high comedies. Uh, and so these are some of his most brilliant explorations of the happy ending uh, and the trials and tribulations and harmonizing influences of love. Um, so it's it's not unexpected. It is expected, but it's always fun to get there, which is one thing I say about Shakespeare to uh, people who are teaching Shakespeare to their kids. It's actually not very plot driven in the sense that you're trying to figure out what happens. You know, with the comedy that the right people are going to get married, you know, with the tragedy that the right people are going to die. That's not 
what drives the action. Right. What drives the action is kind of getting into the things that we've talked about here on the podcast with this series and with other series, which is figuring out these threads that you're going to trace, the contemplations that he's exploring uh, throughout the play and how those things get resolved is the hilarity and then also the profundity. I think when I walk away from a Shakespeare play, sometimes it's the conclusion of the play that I remember, mm-hmm. especially Hamlet. Um, but more often it's particular scenes that are more memorable to me, because as you saying, we, as you said, we know what's going to happen. We know it's a comedy. It's going to end up in marriages and we kind of can figure out pretty quickly who's going to get married. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are particular just gems within the play that stick out that I think if we saw this play performed, we would walk away kind of thinking of those scenes, of those interactions. Now that we're at the end of the play, Heidi, what gems stuck out to you? Um, I think kind of the this particular time in reading through it, I paid more attention to the uh, trajectory of the character of Orlando more than I have in the past because Rosalind steals the show. She is the anchor point of the show. She has by far the best lines. She's the wisest uh, and the funniest, the most witty. So my eye in this play, when I've seen it performed and when I've been reading it, it's pretty much always been on Rosalind. And I found Orlando to be relatively uninteresting. But this particular time, because of some of the conversations you and I had at the beginning of the play... Um, I've been paying more attention to him and realizing he does go through a significant change, a transformation and a becoming. And in Act 5, it really seems as though his turning point is kind of that becomes the anchor point of their happiness and their marriage. And so I was noticing in this particular time his line when Rosalind's says in scene two uh, that she will come, she's dressed as Ganymede, and then she says, tomorrow I cannot serve your turn for Rosalind. Mm. So he still thinks, he still doesn't know yeah. that she is Rosalind. Um, yeah. Although that's debated and maybe we can talk about that. I don't know. Um, and and then he tells her, I can know, I can live no longer by thinking. And then it's at that point that it seems as though she is willing to reveal herself. Yeah, huh. And so I've start I've been thinking about that over the last day or two since I read it. That that line's never really stood out to me before, but in this particular reading of it, it stood out so much to me how much he lives in his head. <laughs> yeah. And how much he lives by his fantasy. Of Rosalind, even though she's literally right there in front of him. And I thought of how much that's like a metaphor for love. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So many times we have this ideal of what we want love to be, which is the thing Shakespeare is kind of mocking and making and pointing pointing fingers at making fun of in the play, the courtly love tradition, the pastoral tradition, as represented by the other these other ridiculous characters. And that you're not even really rooting for. They're in many ways like very unpleasant and caricatured. And um, and it's Rosalind that makes them delightful. Yeah. 
right? And yeah. if it wasn't for her, they would they wouldn't be very interesting at all. But anyway, then I know I'm talking a lot. But then when Orlando says to her, "I can no longer, I can live no longer by thinking," that seems to me. I'm wondering if that's a moment when he's coming out of his head and desiring the real thing, and that's when he can truly see her for who she is. It's interesting that his kind of moments of growth are marked by physical endeavors. So wrestling, you know, Mm -hmm. he has to kind of take down this wrestler, which none of us expect, but he actually defeats him. And this battle with this lion to save his brother. Mm -hmm. I mean, so if he is, as you say, in his head, it's noteworthy that it was, it's physical acts that kind of remove him from being locked inside his skull. Oh, that's so good. I really like that. I like that because one of the accusations against Orlando has been he's just kind of like a, a just a, a guy who's just physical, right? He's huh. he's a wrestler, and yeah. but I've not ever really seen him like that. I've always seen him as stuck in his head. But as I'm thinking about you saying that right now, I think you're exactly right. He the the time kind of his journey is the unity of his his mind and his body right and that yeah. like, forms the trajectory of his character so that he's actually worthy of this woman and ready to be wed to her yeah heidi i'm gonna interject here um and do a little foreshadowing for the next podcast that we're going to do, which is actually going to be the last of the As You Like It podcast. So you and I talked off the air that we had this, this little... so exciting. Yeah, I think it's exciting too. I, I hope our audience will find it exciting. We had this little problem that we we're going to release As You Like It, these five episodes. They have been, by the time you listen to them, um, they will have been released as a batch of five acts. So you can just like listen to them all in a row, maybe after you watch or read the play. So that makes it a little bit hard to gather questions for our traditional question and answer session. So what are we going to do instead? Well, I had this idea that I could talk to some of the student actors that I worked with when I did a Shakespeare showcase about two months ago in Colorado for a school called the Paideia School in um, Fort Collins. And I've contacted them and I've asked them, hey, would you guys be willing to come on and talk about what it was like as a student who's, you know, not really performed that much? What was it like to memorize these lines and to do the blocking and to get up and perform in front of an audience? And one of the the reason I thought about it is one of the scenes that was performed in the Shakespeare showcase was that scene that we talked about in Act Oh, is it Act Three, Heidi? When uh, Rosalind and Orlando kind of meet in the woods for the first time, Orlando's been hanging the poems on the trees. Mm-hmm. Rosalind is hidden as um, disguised as a man. So, my two actors that played that role, I've asked them to be a part of it, and a couple of other actors. Um, so, I just think that could be kind of fun. I, I I might be wrong, but I think that our audience kind of lies in three areas. There are three different reasons that people listen to this show. One, they're just generally interested. They love Shakespeare or there's a particular Shakespeare play 
that they want to hear us talk about. The mm-hmm. second is because they're curious about maybe one day possibly performing, you know, a Shakespeare play or Shakespeare scenes. And I think it can be an intimidating if, if you're one of those people, that's a real possibility. It's possible that that's really intimidating. All of mm. the words, right. um, all of the different actors. So I kind of wanted to give a glimpse about how we did it, how we tried to tackle, make several different scenes kind of manageable. And of course, the third reason I think people listen to the show is um, they like Circe and they're, they're curious about this kind of suite of podcasts. But I really think that those people who, you know, maybe some homeschool administrators or teachers or parents who are interested in kind of trying to tackle the performance of a Shakespeare play, this might give a glimpse into what students' experience of that is like. Hmm. So that's going to be our last show, Heidi. I'm really excited about that. I like these bonus episodes that emphasize the performance of Shakespeare. I do too. I think that's really important. These are plays that were not meant to be read in an armchair. I always tell my students reading Shakespeare in an armchair is a good way to hate Shakespeare all of your days. You have to be really (laughs) hardcore about Shakespeare to just sit down and read it. It is much more fun. I think particularly with the comedies because of how visual the comedies are. Well, I think that there is a contemplative aspect to the tragedies that lends itself to Mm. pauses Mm -hmm. and thinking, especially some of these high tragedies like Hamlet. Yeah. Right. You'd, you'd need to read Hamlet, especially the soliloquies and it, it kind of washes over you and moves on if you're just seeing it performed. Yeah. Because there's just so much depth there. And there are, there is in the comedies too. I don't mean to dismiss the depth of the comedies. There's plenty there that's worthy of uh, sincere contemplation. But with the comedies, so much is dependent on visual. Like who's there on the stage at the time? Uh, and what are they seeing and what's, what's happening between the couples and, and, and how are they interacting with each other and what are the looks on their faces and of the side characters? There's so much potential for comedy, you know, to make it yes. more funny that way. Um, and, you know, they're meant to be performed. Shakespeare wrote plays, not novels. They're not short stories. They're plays. So I like the fact that these bonus episodes are taking our listeners out of the literary contemplation and into the, what does it mean to actually perform Shakespeare? Um, How do actors and directors and producers think about this? Not just, you know, and that's how, what you bring to the table. I'm very literary. So I tend to, let's talk about the themes and that's great. And I think what I do is good, but I, I really want there to be more of that performance aspect so I, I just really like that that's where the, the show is headed on these bonus episodes. I think it's great. So thank you for doing that. Thank you. That's very encouraging. I remember, I can't remember what play we were discussing, but Angelina and I sharply disagreed over this question. Like, I just think like, these were not made to be read. These, these plays were made to be performed and we should see performances, not just read them. And she had a very different perspective. And I don't want to, cast dispersion when she's not here to defend herself. She's very sophisticated with her views of literature. 
Um, mm-hmm. But I, yeah, I have a strong conviction. I will go to the mat for it. And I, I agree with you. These are, these are performative pieces. And I, I'll give you an example from Macbeth that just kind of opens up what, how a play, a Shakespeare play looks different as opposed to just reading it. Um, or as opposed to just like separating a particular soliloquy um, and just reading it in isolation, the famous Macbeth speech tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow mm-hmm. creeps in this petty pace. It's, it happens at the end of the play when read in isolation, in isolation, it's, it's a soliloquy of mourning over kind of the vanity of the world. It's an Ecclesiastes sort of speech. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is in the performance, the speech takes place immediately after Macbeth has learned that his wife has killed herself. So the whole dynamic of their relationship, when you see the play performed, is kind of weighing in on that moment and that speech. And so you, mm. it's easy to lose that if you're just reading the play and haven't seen their relationship develop, or if you're just reading or hearing this soliloquy in isolation. So this is just, mm. I'm trying to emphasize your right. point. Hey, let's, I want to play a little clip, Heidi, from the same okay. 1978 performance. This is the moment in act five where Rosalind and Orlando meet Silvius, the kind of simple forester and his would-be girlfriend, fiance, Phoebe. And they kind of realize that they are in a not a, not a love triangle. They're almost in a love square. Let's, <laughs> let's listen to it. Good shepherd, tell this youth what tis to love. It is to be all made of sighs and tears. And so am I for Phoebe. And I for Ganymede. And I for Rosalind. And I for no woman. It is to be all made of fantasy, all made of passion, and all made of wishes, all adoration, duty, and observance, all humbleness, all patience, and impatience, all purity, all trial, all obedience. And so am I for Phoebe. And so am I for Ganymede. And so am I for Rosalind. And so am I for no woman. If this be so, why blame you me to love you? If this be so, why blame you me to love you? If this be so, why blame you me to love you? Oh, why do you speak too? Why blame you me to love you? To her that is not here, nor doth not hear. Oh, I pray you no more of this. It is like the howling of Irish wolves against the moon. Heidi, I love just, it's such a clever, that for me is one of the gems of the play. Just that little, the 30 seconds is so clever. Um, And what do you see in it? Tell us. Right. That's that's one of the things that I wanted to talk about is, okay, how do you arrange those four actors on the stage? I'll tell you what Hmm. I would do. It might look kind of awkward is um, I would have them all sort of Corona distanced apart. (laughs) (laughs) No, I really would because they're in this kind of situation where if one person 
admitted, if one of the relationships changed, this whole kind of stalemate would collapse. And so to, to place the four in an awkward, like six foot social distancing space away from each other, so that they're not in close enough proximity to touch each other or to embrace, I would just really heighten the kind of strange tension that's happening in this stalemate. Now, Heidi, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to put you on the spot. You're the director. You have this little scene to play out. Where do you want your four actors on the stage? Well, I had pictured them differently, although I think I'm converted. I really like your idea of keeping them coroned, mm-hmm. you know, llamas, llamas distance apart or two big hoop skirts. Oh, um, that's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I like that, but I hadn't, I had pictured them more in my head, more like in, do you remember this in Much Ado, but the Kenneth Branagh version of Much Ado yeah. about nothing yeah. in which the, um, when Michael Keaton's character and his like little minions are all kind of on top of each other. And as each speaks, their heads turn oh. um, like back and forth. Yeah. Um, and so I had kind of pictured it more like that. Like they're parroting each other and, um, and they're all kind of sardined together. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Um, and their movements are mimicking each other because even though they're loving in very different ways and they're all, they're all, except for Rosalind, even Orlando still at this point, is still attached to their distorted views of love. Mm-hmm. And I, I like the idea of kind of lumping them together so the audience has an objective correlative for how, how, how they're all uh, indulging these distorted kind of self self-centered views of love. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I also really like the isolation idea that each of them is highlighted for their isolated kind of self-centered visions of love. So I think both would work. I noticed when I have directed Shakespeare in the past or any play for that matter, there's a, there's an awkwardness to being Hmm. six feet apart. It's just such an awkward distance. I mean, you, you want to, if you know the person step a little closer, I mean, there's just something about like the ability to have physical contact, you know, touch the person on the arm to shake their hand, what have you. And I I've noticed when I, especially when I put young actors on the stage and I want them to stand something like six feet apart, it's, you can just feel them drifting toward each other. It's just almost like physics. They just, they're so not used to standing in that awkward distance that they Mm. just sort of drift together, which is like a good human habit, I think. Um, But as a visual for the audience, ooh, that six feet just feels, it's like, it's hard to explain what it does to an audience, but it just feels to them this is so awkward. Why are they, mm-hmm. and why do I feel so awkward for them? It's because of the strange spacing that they're in. Huh? Yeah, no, I really, I like that a lot. There's so much potential in these performances to, to highlight the themes of the play through the placement of the actors and the way they interact, not just to, it's not just a plot device, right? It's also thematic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
which I think is great. That's what we should do. That's what those performances are for. Agreed. So Heidi, um, at the end of our play, uh, the God of marriage comes back, he pairs everyone (laughs) up and we have our moment with Jacquees. Last week we were wondering what's going to happen. Are we going to get a happy ending with Jacquees? And part of the story that the God of marriage tells us kind of in the middle of this ceremony or getting ready for the ceremony is what has happened to the Duke senior who kind of created this whole mess by casting everyone out of the kingdom. And he, the Duke, the Duke senior has had some sort of a conversion moment there. He's met an old hermit somewhere on his way to battle and he's had this conversion. And I'm going to read to you Jacques's response, and I'd love to know what you think about it. Sir, by your patience, if I heard you rightly, the Duke hath put on a religious life and thrown into neglect the pompous court? To him will I. Out of these convertees, there is much matter to be heard and learned. What? What's going on for Jacques? Is he like, is it possible that he's going to like interested in gaining convictions? What's going on there, Heidi? Good question. I'm just so intrigued by this character. I really can't tell if he's just doesn't work as a character or if he's. If there's some kind sort of, of depth that escapes you or something like that. Yes, or if this is just really brilliant, if it's intended to be that dot, dot, dot. Because he is the outsider character. He's, I mean, there's four marriages at the end of this play. And he makes that funny allusion to uh, Noah's Ark and how there's, here comes another flood. They're all going two by two into the ark or whatever it is. <laughs> and in some ways, he's the one who sees that these are just couples being kind of herded yeah. onto the ark, right? Two by two. And everyone is, in a sense, uh, he points out kind of that how ridiculous that is, mm. which that's kind of insightful. Or else maybe it's just another evidence of his weird melancholy that is just completely out of nowhere and doesn't really work. And so to your point, I don't know exactly what to make of Jacques at the end of the play. He does leave with the Duke, who's now newly converted to religion and re- renounces his claim. And so there's the the renewal and the restoration in the city world. And, and Jacques goes with him, which could indicate a kind of conversion that mirrors the Duke's conversion. Right, And so... That's kind of best case scenario. Um, but he doesn't have any lines other than the one you pointed out that really indicates some kind of change of heart, that love has brought harmony to his melancholy soul. Yeah. So I don't know. I, he's a bit of a question mark still to me at the end. I think, what you're, about you? I think you're being, I think you're very kindly saying that you're just not crazy about him as a character. And I maybe, find him interesting. Yeah, go ahead. But maybe also there's the possibility that, you know, he's just not terribly well drawn. This is one of the right. rare occasions where Shakespeare just didn't like, you know, he's he's amusing. He gets one of the like the great speeches in the Shakespearean canon, all the mm. world's a stage. But other than that, he's just not really a three-dimensional character. 
He's just yeah. kind of this flat cynic. Right. And that's so unlike Shakespeare that I guess I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. Right. As we should. Um, right. And that because he does just add so much depth. It seems to me Shakespeare must have known that Jacques didn't really work. And somehow he wanted that to be like, yeah. he, he, he wanted him to be just flat and, um, and, and to remain there as if there's always kind of this discord in the happiest of stories. Mm-hmm. There's somebody who remains the same. There's somebody's, you know, drunk uncle who makes the same weird <laughs> political right. speech right. at every Thanksgiving dinner. And it's funny and charming, but also like a little bit sad if you really think about yeah, it. Yeah, right, right, you know? right, right. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the, I'm, when I read, you know, that the Duke senior met this hermit on the way, did you think about, did it cross your mind? Um, the picture of Alexander meeting Diogenes, the cynic. Do you know that story? Oh, I do know that story, but I had to put that together. Tell, tell the story. So, so Alexander is conquering, he's moving toward the East, you know, conquering as he goes. And he is by now wealthy with plunder and he stops in i can't remember which city uh and everyone there says you must meet our philosopher diogenes you have to meet him he lives in a barrel so diogenes is a cynic he's you know cast off all worldly wealth he has no regard for uh worldly wealth and i I, that's part of what made me think about the Duke senior, like, this is like maybe what he's attracted to. This is what's going to be demanded of him. So Alexander goes to see Diogenes and he looks down at Diogenes sitting in the barrel. And according to legend, Alexander says, I'll give you anything that you ask for, you know, up to, up to half my kingdom. And Diogenes turns to him and he says, if you could just step out of my light, because Alexander was blocking the light. And that's all that Diogenes asked for. And the story is that Alexander walked away and said, if I was not Alexander, I would wish to be Diogenes. Hmm. And I really didn't think of like, I thought an old hermit, the the conversion character is an old hermit. He sounds a little bit like Diogenes. And Hmm. I'm just imagining what would happen if Jacques goes and he actually talked to us, you know, like a cynic, like, Diogenes, this old hermit. <laughs> so one old hermit meets another old hermit. Like, how would that go? Would they kind of like, would it be a race to the bottom? Is that what, huh. but who knows? Huh. No, I really like that. And the hermit is a staple character in Elizabeth, or not Elizabeth, in, Arth- in the Arthurian legend. Um, kind of the appearance of the hermit in the woods is a medieval plot device. And, and that, that's part of what Shakespeare's doing here is kind of bringing some of these older stories from the Western canon mm. and kind of throwing these characters into as you like it. You know, you've got the pastoral character. Um, but, but what's interesting about that, to go along with what you just said about the Alexander and Diogenes story, and I hadn't put it together with that particular story, but... In all other cases in this play, the stock character from the old Western story, Western canon stories, is is kind of mocked. Huh. Um, huh. 
you know, the, like Audrey, for example, she's uh, in pastoral, in the pastoral plays, the, the young woman shepherdess is always idealized, Yes, but Audrey is not, she's just kind of gross. Yeah. And, (laughs) and so, but not the hermit. And I, and I think that that's interesting uh, that, that this is a real conversion there. And, and it makes a lot of sense for the plot to work. You have to have a radical change. Exactly. And it, it, it's either redemptive, like he changes, has a religious conversion, and he goes to, you know, a monastery, as is what happens. Or you'd have to have him killed, yeah. which ends the play with violence yeah. and overthrow. Um, and, and one of the whole points of the green world is that it is a place of peace and restoration, not a place of violent overthrow. Um, so it does make sense that that the hermit has this harmonizing influence and that religion then kind of brings the peace that is necessary and needed within the city world versus the green world. Heidi, I want to, I want to close with this question. Um, We end with a party. There's a, uh, an epilogue by, by Rosalind. That's a, you know, it's, kind of uncommon. Shakespeare did not mm. kind of keep with that tradition very frequently in his plays. There are a handful of plays that end with an epilogue, but he gives Rosalind um, kind of the closing thoughts. And I love those thoughts, but here's my closing question for you. Our characters have been united in the woods and there's mention of kind of returning now back to society. Why not just stay in the woods? Uh. Yeah, I, I'm, I really love that question. Thank you for asking that question. And I'm, I'm very intrigued by this in Shakespeare in general, that in, in his plays that have a green world, the characters go there to experience harmony and restoration. That's where the action of the play takes place. And that's where things get confused and then realigned the way they should be or harmonized. And then they always go back. And it happens in Midsummer, happens in this one. Uh, and I'm, I love that, that idea that there is an ideal in Arcadia, mm. um, our, the Forest of Arden, but that that's not, there's an Eden, but there's not really where we belong. Yeah. Eden isn't uh, that, 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 I mean, in this, and as you like it, the forest isn't magical, but it still has kind of a magical feel to it. Mm-hmm. You just know it's a special place where something happens and then you have to go back. And, and there's a number of ways we could go in talking about that. One of them is just the idea of the theater, that the theater, that, you know, Shakespeare's constantly contemplating what it means to act, right? It's a world within a world. Yeah. The structure of the globe. We've talked about that before with the heaven and the hell. Uh, that, and there's something about the theater that is in itself a green world, mm-hmm. right? Like you go, the, the audience comes in, they see this completely unrealistic portrayal of, uh, of reality that's not, it, it isn't what the real world is like. And then they have to go back. So the play is itself a green world. And then within the play, there's also a green world. And so there's kind of these, this meta contemplation of theater that's always taking place in Shakespeare. 
uh, in his canon. And he seemed very aware of that and careful with it. Yeah. Careful to say, you can come here to escape for a little while. You can come here for harmonize, for harmonizing influence, and then you have to go back. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And the, the characters have to go through that too. Yeah. The characters go into a green world. They experience a redemption and a harmonizing, and then they go back to a world in which they have to uh, inhabit the hierarchies and the conventions of the society that they've just reordered and escaped. But they get to bring their redemption with them. And that's what's so great about the comedies. I love the comparison between the green world and the theater. Because it's, I mean, if you just took out green world and inserted theater, your entire discussion of kind of the effects of the green world are hopefully the effects of the theater. You know, we're, Mm -hmm. we're shaped by what we see. We see justice, which is so uncommon in our life. We see justice enacted and that justice oftentimes in Shakespeare's play is a neat justice and an actual justice where the bad guys get punished and the good guys get rewarded and the community sees the results, you know, the, the names are named. So mm-hmm. I do, I love the, I love the idea of the green world for the characters is the theater for us. It's definitely what it is for me. Right. Well, and that there's, it wouldn't be to your point about justice, which is huge for Shakespeare. Um, there wouldn't it wouldn't be just for these characters to remain isolated from the rest of society, from what for which they have so much to offer. And they and have they have they were raised to take resp- like the reins of responsibility also. Right. Well, and one of the whole points with the Oliver and Orlando dynamic is that they that Orlando should be included in the estate that they have. Um, And so now he gets a chance to do that. If they stayed in the forest, no matter how idyllic and pastoral, that is an abdication, as you're pointing out, of their responsibilities uh, to their tenants and to their land and to their estate. And that's true for all the characters. But they wouldn't have been able to fulfill that without the green world. Right, right. Yeah, exactly right. So Heidi, um, we are at the end. Do you have any closing thoughts, something that stuck out to you about these five acts that you wanted to remember to us before we say goodbye? Yes. Well, something you just alluded to, and it's the epilogue. I love the epilogue yeah. of this play. Yeah. I think it's magnificent. Uh, largely because it's Rosalind, because she is the character that needs to give this epilogue. There's right. nobody else who can do it, just plot-wise. But also, the way when she says, if I were a woman, and uh-huh. it's just so perfect because it's a male actor. It's like this nod to all of the meta experiences of her entire character, uh, that she she is a male actor playing a female dressed as a male. Yeah. Yeah, it's and really, it's really... In the play yeah. that's been, her true colors have been shown, which is a female, but it's actually really a male. And and so there's just all these levels and then out she comes and then makes this really funny statement about if I were a woman, which of course she is and she isn't. Right. Right. So topsy-turvy. I just love it. And it's a great way for her character to be um, acknowledged as just 
how central she is to this play and how delightful that she is and why people name their kids after her now hundreds of years later and why this is David Kern's favorite play. Yeah. And, and, you know, and all these, she's just so wonderful and so wise and yet so refreshing and real at the same time. And then she gets to close this play. And it's the only play in which the, like you said, epilogue's pretty rare. And it's the only play in which a woman gives the epilogue. Oh, is that right? That's true. Um, so, you know, everything about that is just, I think, purely delightful. Hey, I wonder, would you be willing to read the epilogue for us? Do you have it in yeah, front of but you? I, I don't have it in front of me. So let me, let me find it. Okay, here I go. All right. Oh, and one more thing before I read it yeah. is that the epilogue is in prose, uh, which uh, that's even more rare. And I'm, I don't truly know exactly what to make of that, but it's just a speech. Interesting. You know, it's not a sonnet, which you'd expect, you know, in Romeo and Juliet. Uh, and in it's the prologue and the epilogues are sonnets. Yeah. Um, and in Henry the Fifth, which also has an epilogue, it's um, poetry. Interesting. So I just find that interesting. Yeah, yeah. All right, here we go. Rosalind. It is not the fashion to see the lady, the epilogue. But it is no more unhandsome than to see the Lord the prologue. If it be true that good wine needs no bush, tis true that a good play needs no epilogue. Yet to good wine they do use good bushes, and good plays prove the better by the help of good epilogues. What a case am I in, then, that am neither a good epilogue, nor cannot insinuate you in the behalf of a good play. I am not furnished like a beggar, therefore to beg will not become me. My way is to conjure you, and I'll begin with the women. I charge you, O women, for the love you bear to men, to like as much of this play as please you. And I charge you, O men, for the love you bear to women, as I perceive by your simpering none of you hates them, that between you and the women the play may please. If I were a woman, I would kiss as many of you as had beards that pleased me, complexions that liked me, and breaths that I defied not. And I am sure as many as have good beards or good faces or sweet breaths will for my kind offer when I make curtsy, bid me farewell. End of play. End of play. Well done, Heidi. Thank you very much. Yes. The last thing to point out about the play is that it makes a reference to the title as you like it um which of course if you uh, kind of goes into that the the many ways that the play contemplates the longing for love mm. how is it that you like it right almost like you can order up like how do you like your eggs how do you like your love right yeah uh, yeah and that all of that needs to be harmonized and here comes rosalind at the end of the play to do it for us once more as she's been doing throughout the entire play exactly exactly Heidi um I'm gonna look forward for to the next plays that we're gonna do on the plays the thing so we have done this year the tempest we have done as you like it uh, our back catalog for listeners who are curious includes oh man help me with this Heidi we have done King Lear we have done mm-hmm. Macbeth the tempest the tempest julius caesar right and have we done oh and much ado have we Um, done much ado well david did it with andrew and angelina oh Um, oh oh so way back in the day okay 
Yep. So and coming yeah. up, so there's, there's going to be more. one that I oh, go ahead. Okay. I was just say there's um, lots more to do. We have coming up. We're going to try to tackle Merchant of Venice, one of the obscure, but I do not know why or how plays Coriolanus, which for me is, it's up there. It's like it it rivals Hamlet for me. It rivals Lear for me. It is just stupendous. And I emailed Sarah Jane Bentley the other day, who is on maternity leave with her little Elizabeth. And that is actually one of her favorite Shakespeare plays also. So we are in conversations about making that happen. Um, There's one more, Heidi, that we're going to do this year, but I can't remember what it is. I just completely blanked. Maybe it's midsummer. I can't remember. Maybe you do. I do not remember, but I'm excited about whatever it is. So that's what's upcoming. As I said at the top of the show, we are going to try to do a bonus episode with some young student actors who most of them tackled Shakespeare for the first time. Um, remember, you can join the conversation online on Facebook through the Close Reads discussion group, on Instagram and in Twitter at Twitter at Close Reads Pods, and via email by writing closereadspodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget our newsletter, which you can sign up for at closereads.substack.com. Heidi, it has been, as it always is, a real pleasure. This has been so fun. I did I did really enjoy doing this play. And I'm glad we did a comedy during the Rona. I know. I'm glad we did a comedy during the <laughs> Rona also. We couldn't handle something. We couldn't handle something heavy. <laughs> Along with crime and punishment. Right, right. It'd just be <laughs> too much. It'd just be way too much. <laughs> Everyone, oh, thanks so wow. much um, for listening. Continue to stay in touch with us. And happy viewing. Happy viewing. <laughs> the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. 